This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Can I say share something amazing? Yeah. Get it out there. Do you know how you spell Putin in French? Yeah, I, saw I was going to say that. Also. Yes, like Putin. Oh, <laughs> it's I wonderful. love oh, it's that so much. If there's an e at Putin, the end. Putin. Putin. Yes, you're right. Putin. I was saying more like Quebecois. Like slap a little, slap a little, little English on there, if you will, so to speak. It's a terrible metaphor when you're talking about French, but you know what I mean. So not only is your British accent vaguely Scottish, your French accent is Quebecois. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so very much so. Very much so. comme un vache, I think. Uh, I speak French like a cow is a phrase I learned at some point. All French-speaking listeners, please please write in and confirm or deny that Scott Anderson does, in fact, speak French like a cow. And hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0, a.k.a. Rational Security Live and Let Reason. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson. I'm here with my two other regular co-hosts, Alan Rosenstein. Hello. And Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And we are joined by our unofficial fourth co-host, uh, I believe at this point our record-setting, officially most frequent guest, uh, executive editor of Lawfare, Natalie Orpit. Natalie, thank you for coming back and joining us again. Thank you. This is quite an honor. I hadn't realized that I was quasi-promoted, but I am deeply grateful. Yeah, we have like a bulletin board uh, in back where we we are viciously competing all of our co-hosts against each other. So uh, right now you're in the lead, but we'll see what Ben lets that stand. The prize is more more rational security appearances. (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations. Like a, it's like a pie eating contest where first prize is more pie. Exactly, exactly. But we are excited to have you here today for what is the, we are calling the Edgelord Putin edition because our favorite, uh, not quite, I guess, Eastern European slash uh, Central European uh, uh, authoritarian leader has been up to some things, being very provocative, consciously provocative, deliberately provocative over the last few days, and putting Europe in an increasingly precarious and dangerous position, um, which is one of the topics we're going to be talking about today with everyone. For today, topic one is, maybe he has border recognition disorder. Despite reported reservations among his advisors, Putin is moving, I should say Russian President Vladimir Putin, in case you're not quite sure who we're talking about, is moving forward with at least a partial invasion of Ukraine, having recognized the break, two breakaway Ukrainian territories of Donetsk and Lugansk, apologies for the pronunciation, I don't, I'm sure that's not quite right, as independent countries and deploying troops in aid of their defense. That is in quotes. Is Putin acting rationally? Or are there reasons to be concerned about his mental state? Topic two, your presidential immunity has just been revoked. 
Lethal Weapon 2 reference, if anybody remembers that, a movie that is burned to the brain of all State Department lawyers because of its treatment of diplomatic immunity. The district court overseeing civil lawsuits against former President Trump and associates for the January 6th insurrection has dismissed claims against several of Trump's associates, but allowed some suits against Trump to continue despite his claims of immunity. Does this mean Trump is likely to be held accountable for his actions or not? And topic three, laws don't kill guns, lawsuits kill guns. The families of the Sandy Hook shooting victims have secured a settlement from Remington Arms, the company that made and marketed the gun used in the shooting. Meanwhile, California is considering another law that would allow individuals to use private lawsuits to enforce gun restrictions modeled on Texas's SB8 anti-abortion law. Are private lawsuits the route to reducing gun violence? For our first topic, Alan, let me hand it over to you. So I suspect that we all and all of our listeners are aware of the increasingly dire situation uh, on the Russian and Ukrainian border. The, the, the most important recent development, and we're recording this, we should say, on uh, Tuesday morning, uh, is that Putin has uh, officially recognized the two uh, breakaway regions in Ukraine as independent, despite very little support in the international community for that move. He's also... Uh, ordered uh, Russian troops to move into those areas, calling them, quote unquote, uh, peacekeepers. Uh, And in addition, he has, uh, he delivered a kind of long rambling speech to the Russian public, uh, talking about Russia and its role and Ukraine and broad world historical terms, which raises some obvious questions about his intentions. And as Scott alluded to uh, at the top, uh, his mental state. So uh, just to kind of jump right in there, let me start with you, uh, Quinta. What is the strategic significance of Putin's recognition of the breakaway Ukrainian regions? I mean, it's not like Ukraine had uh, much ability to control them uh, before Putin's announcement. And yet this is being taken by the international community uh, exceptionally seriously. So I'm going to ask Scott about the kind of legal implications. But first, I want to start with you, Quinta, about the strategic uh, implications of this move. As you say, I think it's important to keep in mind that Donetsk and Luhansk, which are sort of Russian-backed breakaway republics, as you say, in eastern Ukraine, were not formally recognized by Russia as such until this weekend, uh, which led them to exist in this kind of weird hinterland where Ukraine didn't recognize that they had left. Russia didn't recognize them. Not really clear who is in control and how much. And so... The fact that Russia is taking this step is big in terms of of what it means for Russia's goals in in Ukraine. I saw a lot of suggestion after Putin's speech that this suggested that Russia was, you know, necessarily going to go to war and try to take perhaps Kiev or the rest of Ukraine. It wasn't clear to me after talking to some Russia experts, if that is in fact the case, or whether this is potentially, you know, one step, and then there might be other steps, or there might not, because it could, it seemed to me that you can imagine a world where Putin says, you know, we've recognized Donetsk and Luhansk, we uh, need to perhaps put our troops in that region to protect against the the genocide of ethnic Russians in that region, which is a falsehood that he's been promoting, but then not maybe take the step of fully moving on Kiev, which I think would be pretty disastrous for everyone involved, really. That said, his speech was extremely bellicose and just weird. I mean, it actually, it reminded me a lot of watching a Trump speech. And I say that advisedly, it was long, it was rambling, it was all over the place. Obviously, I was watching using subtitles. 
it was just weird. And his meeting with his various high-level Russian officials was also weird and reminded me of a Trump cabinet meeting where he kind of calls on them one-on-one to sort of pledge their fealty. Some of them didn't seem to be very clear, like, what he wanted or why. You know, Putin is often portrayed as kind of playing n-dimensional chess in the American and English language media. But this really just seemed to me like a guy who's like kind of got weird in quarantine. And that's <laughs> deeply concerning because he also happens to be in control of nuclear arsenals. But literally, I mean, look, the guy the guy has been in his dacha the whole pandemic. For a while, you had to go through like literally a disinfecting tunnel to get to him. They've been showing all of these meetings he's been holding with people where he's at one end of, as we joked last week, an increasingly long table. This meeting with his his various high-level Russian officials, he's sitting at like one end of a room, like a huge, enormous room with kind of this very long carpet runner connecting them. It just seems like he's kind of on his own here. It's very strange. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I do think... Before, before we go to Scott on the legal issues, I, I do think it's important to underscore the importance of Putin's own personality. I mean, I know it's unfashionable among historians and IR theorists to pay too much attention to the specific personalities, right? Um, you know, great man or great woman history is, is not considered particularly rigorous. But I do think when it comes to these moments, right, these hinge points where a, a nation can act one way or the other, it really does come down, especially in autocracies like Russia, to the specific mental states of the individuals in charge. And and it does seem, you know, that that for Putin, while for Russia generally, drawing the line here and saying, look, we've just now gobbled up another 15% of Ukraine's territory by recognizing Donetsk and Luhansk and making them basically de facto client states would not be a bad outcome. And I'm sure that the West and in particular Europe, who wants its, you know, continued gas imports, would probably swallow that. I'm not sure it'd be enough for Putin's own psychology. And that to me seems like the really worrying possibility that Putin has really, you know, he, he believes his bullshit, uh, for lack of a better term, about his world historical nature, you know, uh, with regards to the Russian fatherland, blah, blah, blah. But but I, I do want to, you know, stay on this recognition point. I mean, Scott, you are you are our expert on all things recognition. So sort of what are the legal implications here? Can he just do this under international law? Does it have any effect? Or is, is this just a kind of a, a press release um, until everyone else agrees to his claim that these two breakaway republics are actually now independent sovereign nations? Yeah, it's a complicated question because recognition is one of these issues in a way, kind of the issue or the act that is both absolutely foundational for international legal obligations, but also is not itself super tightly governed by international law, in part because it is so foundational for the rest of the obligations that international law consists of. Uh, Recognition is the act by which one government identifies another entity as a state and a regime as that state's government, and therefore says, okay, you are a state, so you get all of the duties and obligations that international law provides to all states. We owe you certain duties, you owe us certain duties, and we can enter into treaties and have sorts of relationships there. That is a a fundamental idea. You have to say, okay, well, until you have states, you don't really have international law because international law is about agreements between states. And so you have to have some act that says, well, who gets in the club and who doesn't? And the way we do it in practice is each state kind of makes its own recognition determinations. Now, there are certain criterion that are often seen as customary international law governing this. You have to have uh, a permanent population 
on a defined territory. You have to have a government in place and an ability and a, and a willingness and an ability to engage in international foreign relations. And that's that you have to kind of say, like, I am a state and I or I am a, a, a at least aspiring to be a state. The problem is that these are all criteria that are have a lot of range of potential ways of evaluating. Very few states are no states like they're going to go along with Putin on this, at least not immediately. Maybe a few may go down the road, but probably less than a handful, certainly less than 10. We know this because Putin's done very similar things in the past in regards to Abkhazia and South Ossetia in 2008. And those quote unquote countries are only recognized by Russia and five to seven other handful of countries, including Vanuatu uh, and a couple other states that kind of notoriously are willing to take recognition determinations based off of foreign assistance and certain other uh, factors. So you are in this kind of position where you, where Putin's doing something, it's hard to say it's like categorically doesn't meet the basic criterion that are out there in international law, but it stretches their credulity at least. And there's countervailing international law interest, right? Like you're not supposed to use military force to undermine the territorial integrity of states. That's actually like the basic, that's like number one international law, the most important principle. And this very clearly undermines that. And so to the extent that this seems like pretextual, which it absolutely does, you know, it's not something that most people will see as legal under international law. But what allows Putin to say is we say, well, look, we think these are countries. I recognize them as countries. And now as countries, they have a right to self-defense and more importantly, a right to collective self-defense, meaning they are allowed to invite other countries in to help them defend against armed attacks and the imminent threat of armed attacks. And that's what happened last night. Uh, these countries said, we're entering into these treaties. We understand we're going to get security assistance from Russia. Russia is going to come in and help us defend ourselves against attacks from Ukraine. The real question here is, I think, what does this mean in terms of an intermediate step? You know, is this just a way to justify against eventual war with Ukraine to go ahead and like take the rest of the country? Or is this something to say this is an intermediate step that either maybe a stopping point or at least is a, uh, a slice approach without Putin really knowing what the next step is? I tend to think it's the latter, as Quinta kind of described, for the simple reason that there are other arguments that would be equally implausible but still provide some sort of gloss of international legal acceptability that Putin could have made against Ukraine if he really wanted to march straight to Kiev. Um, he could have basically said they attacked him, forged a fake attack, um, as we know the U.S. government has accused him of trying to do. You could say humanitarian intervention, uh, which is like a controversial but still international law theory. Some people say states have an ability to do. You know, there's a, a couple of different things you could do. In Crimea, he didn't need any of this, right? Like he just marched in and essentially annexed the territory on an idea that, oh, this was Russian territory all along and Russian people all along uh, and should go back there. So the fact that he's actually segregating out Donetsk and Lugansk, again, I apologize for the pronunciation. I'm not sure exactly how to say that last one. It, to me, says, okay, I'm segregating these out. I'm giving these, these separate governments. I think that strongly suggests a, at least no immediate intent to move on the rest of Ukraine. Because if you were just going to conquer Ukraine and gain control anyway, you wouldn't form these separate governments and separate counters of power in these sorts of areas. And you know you're the, the you would adopt probably international legal premise that would let you go much further into Ukraine. So far, this really only lets you get into those territories. So I kind of think there's a stopping point. Doesn't mean Putin's not going to go further down the road, but I think he put this argument as a medium point to try and say, "I'm only going this far. How much are you going to sanction me now, Western states and NATO allies? You know, what level of punishment are you going to do given that I'm only taking two slices of the pie, not the whole thing?" And uh, I think this legal argument fits into that broader strategic choice that he seems to be pursuing. We can get into whether that's rational or not, but I, I want to turn to Natalie and hear what she has to say on this. Yeah. So I think there were a couple of things that occurred to me, which you've sort of touched on, Scott, and actually 
in in my mind, it was a connection between what you were saying, Quinta, and what you were saying, Scott, which is if part of the narrative here on the U.S. coverage side is that Putin is really not thinking rationally right now, why would he bother with these international law pretexts, right? He has not always done that in the past. And it sort of reminds me of, um, you know, having studied international law and human rights in law school, we clung very dearly to um, Lewis Hankins' words that something along the lines of um, almost all nations abide by almost all laws almost all of the time, almost all principles of international law, which is just to say states act toward international law the same way that individuals act toward law domestically. But this is a, a situation where it's not really clear that Putin needed to to cloak all of this in argue, you know, what he is arguing to be legitimate international law bases for doing this. And I sort of wonder, you know, why he bothers. And to me, that's inconsistent with the idea that he's he's just sort of not tethered to reality right now. That seems just it feels inconsistent to me. I think also in combination with this rhetoric that we're hearing a lot about that, you know, Ukraine is not a real country. It's part of this long historic Russian identity and, you know, it's being propped up by a Western supported government. And actually, especially the rhetoric that there is a genocide going on against Russian speaking populations in these regions, um, you know, that's another theoretically legal pretext for going in, albeit one that Russia has been very forcibly against, namely intervening in other countries' affairs, um, even when it was for allegedly humanitarian purposes. So all of this feels inconsistent. And at the same time, I think maybe in my mind, there is enough weighing on the side of irrationality is not a sufficient explanation for what's going on here because there's too much adherence to international law arguments. To be clear, I guess when when I say Putin is not behaving 100% rationally, I don't mean he's completely disconnected with reality. I mean, as you say, Russia is clearly invested in building up international law arguments to the extent, as Scott pointed out, of U.S. intelligence has accused Russia of planning false flag operations, um, of planning to, you know, make up falsehoods about Ukrainian incursions into Russian territory to provide a justification. What what I meant more is that strategically, this kind of incursion on Ukraine makes absolutely no sense. As we've seen, the West has been surprisingly united against Russia. This kind of invasion of Ukraine or annex, not excuse me, not an annexation, although the fact that I made that mistake is telling, uh, recognition of Donetsk and Luhansk is not popular with Russians. There was, you know, cheering in the streets of Moscow when Russia annexed Crimea in 2014. Donetsk and Luhansk just do not have the same connection. It's not popular with Russians. It's going to cut Russia off further from the international community. Putin is arguably at a, you know, a shaky point in his regime. This is not going to help if they do try to take Kiev. It's beyond me how they plan to hold it. That's really expensive. You know, Russia is not a rich country, although it does have a military that's well suited to this kind of operation. So in the big strategic sense, it's just utterly bewildering. And every Russia expert I've spoken with has been utterly bewildered as to why he's behaving this way. But I do think that that's separate from the question of how they're going about justifying the actions they're taking, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. Yeah, I, I, I think I, I take maybe an intermediate position between Natalie and, and Quinta in, in that I, I think that Putin can be doing two things at once, right? He, he can be trying to maximize his optionality by, on the one hand, preparing to whip his public into support for a much larger scale invasion of Ukraine, while at the same time laying the groundwork if he then decides that gobbling up or simply just continuing to destabilize Ukraine by propping up Donetsk and Luhansk, you know, he can use this international law fiction that he's built up to then come to the negotiating table, less so, I suspect, with America, more so with Europe and particularly Germany, right, uh, who may be willing to swallow this and use the international law chaff that Putin is throwing as cover because the Germans have their own serious sort of energy problem, which is, again, something we should talk about, you know, German energy decisions as as a driver of, of geopolitical security issues, but that's probably a topic for, for another uh, day. And, and so I, I, I think both of those things can be true at once. And, 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 you know, in this respect, I think Putin is, you know, from his perspective, quite intelligently maximizing his, his optionality in terms of how much he wants to, you know, how, how far he wants to go. I think that's right. But, you know, maximizing the optionality inherently means keeping the flexibility of not going further into Ukraine, uh, which I think is is a sign here. And and I will say I agree with everything Quinta laid out about the potential consequences and why going further into Ukraine would be particularly bad and why this action also poses a lot of problems to say, well, what calculus is Putin weighing this on? But, I, you know, the one thing I'll say is you know, you got to think of the precedent of this. Like Putin's done this before again, right? Abkhazia, South Ossetia, almost the exact same thing. Ukraine's a different than Georgia in a variety of ways, including proximity to Europe. But nonetheless, basically the same action took place there. No one talks about those anymore, right? Like they have become kind of costly, uh, like satellites of European influence. Uh, they're heavily subsidized by the Russian state. They actually had to like cut subsidies a couple of years ago because of sanctions and sort of other reasons that have led the reason, regions to have a lot of problems. But they're like not quite the you know ever present thorn in the side of Russia's international relations that a lot of people said they were going to be at the time. And if you look back, some of the discussions around those actually sounded a lot like the discussions we're hearing now about the downfall of the European order, the bucking of longstanding international norms by Putin. So I'm not sure part of his calculus here isn't that like, well, I think I can get away with this in a couple of years, and some of the consequences are going to be more minimal. And then I think the kind of splitting the coalition element of it, as Alan kind of laid, it definitely enters in here as well, saying, well, look, you guys, you guys have to keep something in your sanctions quiver for if I do want to move on Kiev. So you can't slap me with the full set of sanctions you may be threatening here, um, or else you're going to have no way to deter me from doing anything further. And that's going to be a tricky situation that the alliance is going to have to muddle through and say, okay, now I, I'm fairly confident they can come to a common approach on this. Uh, but I suspect it's going to be short of a full quiver of sanctions that they could unleash, because again, they really do have to keep something in reserve as an additional deterrent. So, you know, it's it's a splitting the hair sort of situation. I think, again, that suggests there's a rationality entering into here. That doesn't mean that Putin doesn't overvalue certain things. Like he clearly has, I think uh, Fiona Hill had made some interesting comments about this, and I think it was the Times earlier this week, that like Putin very clearly seems to ha overvalue Ukraine. He has, he has a real strong sense of Russia's role in history and his role in Russian history and getting Ukraine back or reestablishing influence over it is a big part of that. But setting out that objective and valuing it much more highly, he still seems to be engaging, at least in my mind, in a lot of strategic behavior to get there. And I think may have settled on this as an intermediate step and an intermediate victory um, that he can claim relatively low cost without having to decide whether to go further and take the entire country, um, which I think is a much more costly endeavor and would be much more of a rupture. Yeah, I mean, to to build on your point about South Ossetia and Abkhazia, I mean, 
I just looked it up. That that war in Georgia lasted 12 days, and Russia notably did not go on to try to take Tbilisi, the capital of Georgia. And so I do think that part of what makes this situation really different from that invasion um, and frankly, the the seizure of Crimea in 2014 is that the options on the table are not just increasing Russian control over the Donbass, but potentially trying to take control of the capital or the entire country. And that's just a completely different proposition, both in terms of the scale um, of what's being proposed and of the the violence that would result if Russia really were to try that. Well, from one erratic authoritarian to another... That, that feels like it was really just too easy, frankly. Uh, so our second topic is Thompson v. Trump. Important to distinguish from Trump v. Thompson, the case involving the January 6th committee's request to the National Archives for material related to the insurrection. This case has to do with a lawsuit filed by January 6th chairman Benny Thompson, along with Representative Eric Swalwell and a handful of Capitol Police officers against a a murderer's row of folks, Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr., Rudy Giuliani, uh, Congressman Mo Brooks, and I think I'm leaving some people out as well. Also the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, I believe. Uh, So this is a incredibly complicated case. And we finally got a ruling in it from the district court. And I noted that the the district court said in its ruling that oral argument went on for five hours, which just shows how complicated things are. So the court's ruling here, it dismissed the complaint against Trump Jr., Giuliani, and Brooks, but had some really interesting holdings when it comes to whether or not Trump can be sued here, uh, whether or not there was a conspiracy to prevent Congress from assembling to certify the electoral vote on January 6th, and also whether or not Trump's statements ginning up the crowd on January 6th constitute incitement and are not protected by the First Amendment. So, Alan, let me pass it to you because I know you've been following this case closely. Can you give us the top line on uh, what the court ruled when it came to immunity and the First Amendment? And frankly, I'm also interested in your thoughts on whether or not this is going to hold up on appeal, because I will admit that my eyebrows had risen at certain points while reading the decision. Yeah. So, you know, as you put it, this opinion has like 18,000 moving parts. Uh, But the two, I think, most important ones, uh, both in terms of Trump's liability and also just for the development of the relevant law in this area, which is uh, unsettled and interesting and important, uh, is on the one hand, the question of whether uh, the president under Nixon versus Fitzgerald enjoys absolute immunity uh, for his actions on January 6th. And the second is whether under the very restrictive Brandenburg versus Ohio test for what counts as incitement under the First Amendment, uh, his public remarks reach that level and therefore uh, he can be uh, sued uh, for them. You know, so in, in both cases, the, the court recognized that these issues are, you know, hard ones. Um, I think especially the immunity issue is a hard one. I, I think the First Amendment issue is, to be honest, an easier one. And I'm kind of surprised that the court uh, ruled the way it did. But at least on the immunity issue, the court recognized that this is a, a hard case. And the question of, you know, what counts as the outer perimeter of the president's official duties uh, is a complicated one. Um, but, you know, basically the court held that the take care clause which is the source of the president's power in this area to enforce the laws requires sort of a good faith attempt to actually enforce the laws. Uh, And because in the court's view, what Trump was trying to do was subvert the law, specifically subvert Congress's uh, appropriate role in certifying the electoral votes, 
that therefore it fell outside the um, you know, outer perimeter of his of his uh, official actions. And then on the First Amendment issue, the court, again, recognizing that Brandenburg was the appropriate test, I think looked really heavily and relied heavily on the background contextual factors of you know who was at January 6th, the, the months-long campaign that uh, the president engaged in to undermine the election, you know, as well as the unique power of the president's speech and how that can affect the actions of individuals to hold that this met the, the, the line on, on incitement. I will say I am particularly skeptical uh, that the First Amendment ruling will hold up on appeal, um, which is where this is going, that we'll have to see what panel the DC Circuit selects to hear this. I also don't expect that the uh, immunity ruling will uh, will hold up, um, though there I think it is a closer call. I think the issue is just that the kind of binding precedent in this case, Nixon versus Fitzgerald, just underspecifies what the outer bounds of the president's uh, official duties are, uh, in particular what to do in a situation where the president is alleged to act uh, unlawfully in such a way that plausibly uh, is not just an unlawful attempt to enforce the official duties of the presidency, but is so unlawful that it goes beyond those official duties. But I, I think that, you know, this is just the beginning of what I suspect is going to be a very long process. It's going to go to the DC circuit. This is the sort of thing I could imagine going on bonk because of its importance. And the sort of thing that especially if the DC circuit finds either uh, that there was no immunity for Trump or that, that the First Amendment does not uh, protect his uh, speech, um, I, I suspect this will absolutely be taken by the Supreme Court. And my guess ultimately will be that, that that this lawsuit will not succeed against Trump, both on First Amendment grounds and on presidential immunity grounds. But we'll have to see. One thing that I thought was pretty interesting about this opinion, a few things, uh, is that the way that he parses the speech between the different participants in the January 6th speeches, President Trump, Giuliani, Brooks, and, and other people is is really it's drawing a very fine line in a way that I'm not sure really withholds scrutiny and distinguishing them to some extent. Um, this ties into the First Amendment question, but I, I thought it was just a really interesting kind of balancing of the equities that the judge seems to be pursuing here. You know, we we Alan and I co-authored uh, with with a third co-author a piece on this case when it first came out. I do feel like kind of vindicated at least a little bit because one of the the avenue it seemed to me that which we posited the Fitzgerald immunity, one way the a court or the plaintiffs might try and get around it is by trying to ride off of other existing areas of law where presidential duties are kind of segregated out. And that did seem to play a role here, basically saying, well, there's some of these, there's no presidential function in a lot of what President Trump was talking about here. And so you can't argue this is part of his duties. And, and, and that makes some sense to me. Um, but again, it's how clearly can you draw that line? How comfortable is an appellate court going to be willing to do that? I, I share Alan's skepticism of that. Um, it's worth knowing Judge Mehta is a kind of interesting judge. He's had a number of opinions like this that push the envelope uh, a little bit about existing areas of law. Uh, the one that stands out in my mind most clearly is one of the early emoluments law cases where, if I recall correctly, I think it was on legislative standing where he basically said, you know, you could see a lawsuit being advanced by legislators here um, that the D.C. Circuit ended up doing away with pretty handily. And I think correctly under Supreme Court precedent that I don't personally disagree with, but is nonetheless still Supreme Court precedent reigns be burned. Uh, so I, I think Meta sees his role as a district court judge, perhaps in a way to advocate and push for evolution of the law. District court judges take different perspectives on this. Like some of them say, look, I'm really here to, I don't control what the laws for the Supreme Court comes down is. I take it on face value. I try and anticipate how the Supreme Court and the appellate court are going to look at this. And then I apply it narrowly 
to uh, the facts that I have, and I only address legal questions where I have to. And then other district court judges say, like, look, I have an idea about where the law is supposed to go, uh, and I'm going to use my briefing as an opportunity to make a case for that. The latter is what it strikes me as Meta is doing here and what he's done in that prior case and a, a number of other cases that have popped up on my radar. You know, you can argue whether or not that's like the right judicial role. Uh, and and I think there's virtues and and downsides to it. But I do think that it, that means it's probably going to face problems on appeal because I just some of the distinctions that are made here, some of the approaches and the fine lines that he's kind of drawing, I, I think is going to make a lot of judges uncomfortable even on the D.C. Circuit, where we've seen Trump suffer a number of setbacks in the last few years. Um, I think this might be I, I actually find the immunity argument to be the one that they might be most comfortable drawing a line around. Some of the other ones, I, it just doesn't seem like they're going to want to um, try and draw these sort of narrow factual distinctions. They'd be too worried about setting weird precedents for future cases. But I, I could be wrong on that. I'd be curious to see how it plays out. I'm not sure I'm agree. I agree with you, Scott. I don't know that the way to read what Meta is doing, at least here, um, is trying to anticipate the way that the law should evolve. I think that this is really an unprecedented fact pattern, right? There is room in the pre-existing case law about presidential immunity to explore what is beyond the outer perimeter. And this is so far beyond what was already deemed outside of the official perimeter in Clinton v. Jones. And I just think it's it's silly to pretend that, like, sure, any case that is going to say, well, yes, this one actually is beyond the outer perimeter of presidential duties is, sure, going to be something new. But I think that the um, trying to construe this conduct as within the official um, duties of the president is is really a stretch and should be recognized as such. I thought it was interesting that the, or I suppose not interesting, maybe a little bit disappointing to me, that Judge Maida relied on the fact that what Trump was doing with, was within his um, role as a candidate rather than his duties as president. And the reason that he did that was because there is case law differentiating between government officials' conduct as candidates versus in their official capacity. And that is a line that um, courts have felt comfortable deeming what is immune versus what is not immune. In my mind, surely there must be some other function in which a president can act that is beyond his or her official duties as president that doesn't have to be as a political candidate. Like surely there is conduct that falls in neither of those categories to which immunity should not be extended. That didn't need to be explored here, but I think this this fact pattern to me just begs that question. And, you know, fine if it's safer couched in the idea that he was acting as a candidate and therefore there's some case law to support this. But in my mind, it should not need to rest on that. Natalie, I, I take your point that Nixon versus Fitzgerald is pretty underspecified. And there is you know, lots of room to creatively think about what counts as the uh, outer perimeter of, of the executive responsibilities and executive power. What I think frustrates me sort of generally about discussions that we have about presidential immunity is how kind of formalistic they get, you know, as if there's this thing called 
the executive power and it has specific outer bounds. And there's some logical exercise in figuring out whether this set of facts fell on one side versus the other side. And you get into these almost kind of metaphysical distinctions that you frequently get into in law, where, where you're trying to derive conclusions logically from underspecified premises. To me, you know, presidential immunity is kind of the quintessential functional separation of powers doctrine, which is all about and can only be justified based on the incentives that it creates for presidents. I mean, the reason we have presidential immunity is because we, and maybe not all of us, but you know, the Supreme Court is worried about causing the president to constantly be looking over his shoulder, constantly be looking to White House counsel, constantly be acting defensively because he or she is worried that after you know they leave office, they can be sued for something. And so the question to me, and I think the kind of fundamental issue that we have to grapple with is, you know, not was this within President Trump's outer bounds of power? Because I have no idea how to answer that question. But if we allow this lawsuit to go forward, right, um, what are going to be the implications for future presidents? And how free are they going to feel in their ability to carry out the law as they understand it, um, given this potential for liability. Now, the response might be, yeah, but Trump was exceptional and Trump was bad faith. And like, why are you holding water for Trump? And the whole point is not holding water for Trump. It's recognizing that these decisions have these second order consequences. And, you know, I think it's important to just be clear about what your priors are with respect to how important you think it is for the president to feel um, that they have a lot of flexibility to react to events. Now, maybe the answer is, I don't feel like it's that important, or I am willing to accept this cost because I think that the the accountability that a civil lawsuit uh, can generate is really, really important. And therefore, it's worth potentially getting the president to act more defensively going forward. I mean, that raises the related question of, is a civil lawsuit really the best way to provide accountability? Are we getting a lot of accountability through this mechanism versus things like impeachment or the political process? But these are the questions that it strikes me we should be talking about uh, rather than just going round and round in circles about what the words, you know, outer perimeter means. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I think that's a fair point, but the outer bounds principle is, you know, the, the, the principle that this is all derived from is separation of powers, right? And separation of powers jurisprudence is all about fuzzy lines and balancing acts. 
Um, I think, you know, one thing that is missing from this conversation, which uh, the, the, the plaintiffs made an argument was, you know, the president was, the conduct was directed in a manner toward Congress. And so to the extent you're thinking about these principles of presidential immunity as um, designed to uphold the president's powers that are unique to him or her, and that is part of the overall structure in which the separation of powers has to work. When the president is acting in such a way that is both unique in the sense that, you know, Clinton v. Jones was about a civil lawsuit about sexual harassment, and Nixon v. Fitzgerald was a case about Nixon firing someone, and this is about, you know, potentially inciting an insurrection and, you know, fomenting a an attack on Congress. Yes, those facts are different, but also the context for it is an assault on the separation of powers. And I think when you're tying it back to the reason for which presidential immunity exists, that should be taken into account. Quinta, I want to hear from you on all of this, too. I want to build on your point a little bit, because I think in my mind, what I see in this lawsuit and what I see Judge Meta puzzling through is a sort of a big picture question that I think judges have been struggling with throughout the Trump presidency um, and that we saw Robert Mueller struggle with and that we continue to struggle with, which is what do you do when you have somebody who is wielding the powers of the presidency or wielded the powers of the presidency who is acting so far outside the norm of what we conceptualize the presidency to be and mean that his actions I would argue, make some of these more formalistic conceptions of presidential power and separation of powers look, frankly, absurd. And I think we saw this, for example, in the Hawaii v. Trump case, the travel ban case, where the Supreme Court majority took a sort of what I would argue is a very formalistic view of presidential power and presidential power as delegated by statute uh, to control immigration and essentially said, well, it's okay that, you know, this was obviously something that was animated by anti-Muslim animus because they've papered it over with enough of an administrative record that we're going to let that one slide. I think you also saw that in the Mueller report, where uh, Mueller essentially, in arguing that Trump could have committed obstruction of justice even by taking actions within his Article II authority, that, that that doesn't, in Mueller's legal reasoning as he lays it out in the report, that that doesn't cause legal problems because, and I'm going to fudge the reasoning here, but just to to give a very high level description, Trump's actions are so far outside the realm of what we would conceptualize as the legitimate exercise of presidential authority under the take care clause that it's not a problem to apply these obstruction statutes. And I think over the course of the Trump presidency, and even now, we have seen this push and pull between the more formalistic approach and the approach of those who are really looking at Trump and saying, this guy is just not within bounds. Um, and Judge Mehta's ruling, to me, seems to be falling into the latter camp. Now, the pattern that we've seen again and again is that the people who are trying to respond in this more aggressive way to how Trump wielded his power again and again are pushed back on by sort of the what I've described here as the formalist camp, and I would not be surprised if we saw that happen in the D.C. Circuit. But I do think it's notable that, you know, five years on, we're still having this fight, and it doesn't seem to me like it's going to be resolved anytime soon. 
I don't. I agree with that. I think that that's probably right. But the one thing I would just add to that is that I actually don't think the DC Circuit is as strictly formalist as you might expect on the stuff, or frankly, even the Supreme Court has proven to be. Um, you know, there was a view for a long time that was very prevalent in legal circles, particularly conservative legal circles, but still legal circles about you know exactly a lot of these reviews of different types of presidential action that a lot of Trump's arguments are kind of rooted in. A lot of people thought this is kind of like how all these separation of powers issues worked out. And you see it in a lot of the Rehnquist Court's judgments, including Reigns that I mentioned earlier. And, uh, you know, a lot of case law kind of developed in this era that seemed to take a very broad vision uh, or a very limited vision, I should say, of the court's appropriate role in approaching anything with the separation of powers concern. And that view is actually like kind of watered down a little bit. It's watered down a little bit in uh, Mazars, uh, you know, a case that kind of said, oh, yeah, there is actually could be judicial enforcement of these, these despite separation of powers concerns around these sorts of issues. Um, you've seen this sort of pushback that has happened. And I think a few different fronts in the D.C. Circuit, again, we've seen like a number of these sorts of opinions that push back against these sorts of views, the McGahn line of cases, uh, the Nora case more recently, um, although that was a little complicated, it's like a former president. So, you know, I just am not sure that the strict formalist vision is like is necessarily going to prevail here. I think actually one of the issues here is just that it's a harder set of facts to splice. You know, I think that they're going to be hesitant to say like categorically absolute immunity is available. I kind of suspect if they rein this back, it's going to be more on parsing the actual facts and conduct and how it relates to the presidential role, not necessarily saying that 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 any such conduct will necessarily fall in there. But the facts are tricky. And I could see certain panels maybe going the other way, at least on the immunity issue. Um, the free speech uh, Brandenburg issue is, I think, is, is, is a kind of more complicated one that uh, I'm not as comfortable evaluating. But we'll be curious to see where they come out. I got you, Quinta. Ah, I got the Yeah, just for context, Scott and I have been having, and Molly, (laughs) have been having like a month-long argument about Mazars by land, by sea, by air, uh, and Scott just snuck that in and he didn't give me an opportunity to respond. So just know that he's wrong. Well, you can probably work into this next topic. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, Well, speaking of the value of civil litigation, in at least some context. Let's talk about it in a very different context. This past week, we learned of a very interesting settlement agreement reached by the families of the victims, although they themselves, of course, are also victims, of this incredibly tragic Sandy Hook shooting um, from 2012, where we saw uh, a number of children and employees of an elementary school killed by a shooter. Um, The families then sued the Remington Arms, the company that manufactured and marketed the firearm used in the attack uh, in a kind of military-style assault rifle. I think it's a type of something like an AR-15, and reached this settlement, um, in part because a the usual legal immunities that it's extended to uh, gun producers by federal law has a provision that the family had been arguing actually allowed certain violations of state law committed by Remington Arms, I think related to the marketing, although I'm actually not 100% confident I'm remembering that correctly. Uh, of the firearm penetrated the federal immunity. It's a really interesting legal holding. Obviously, we didn't get a judgment on this because they reached a settlement and this instead, but the 
Remington appears to reach the conclusion that the legal risk was serious enough to warrant settling for $73 million. And then perhaps most importantly, the last sticking point, which is very interesting, is that they have reportedly agreed to disclose a large amount of documents about how they market this firearm uh, and, and other potentially other firearms as well, which is something that the victims had really wanted as a means of getting a better sense of how they're marketed and developing better policies to potentially stop the marketing of these firearms to particular populations where they may lead to gun violence like this. At the same time, we're seeing a really interesting debate take happening in California where essentially the state legislature looking at the SB8 law in Texas, which is a kind of complicated legal mechanism that essentially gives individual private citizens the right to sue medical offices that provide abortion services for really substantial damages if they do so, but doesn't actually expressly prohibit it in the usual means of federal enforcement, which has insulated it from judicial review, at least thus far. Some people in California are now talking about taking a similar model in regards to gun restrictions, which would limit the ability to review, or could at least argue, limit the ability for those restrictions to be subject to judicial review in a similar way. It's an interesting and model I think many people have predicted coming after SB8 seemed to survive at least the initial wave of judicial scrutiny. Um, and California seems to be taking steps towards potentially implementing something along those lines. Does this all mean that these private lawsuits are going to be perhaps a major new tool or maybe the major new tool by which we're going to see pushback against gun manufacturers, potentially efforts to address gun violence. Natalie, let me turn it over to you first. I know you've been looking at this case. I'd be curious to your your reactions. I think it's a really interesting case. Um, it is a big accomplishment. It's a huge settlement. Um, you know, the attorneys for the Sandy Hook victims made the point that this hopefully will affect insurers who will not be willing to charge as little as they are to insure gun-related policies um, because it may end up costing them this much. This this payment is going to be made out by insurance companies. It made me think also of um, the tobacco industry and what finally brought down the tobacco industry, which was also civil litigation and followed a similar pattern in the sense that lawsuits brought by individuals had had originally failed. So there was not the same sort of legislation that was blocking a lot of the suits as is, in the, as is the case for gun manufacturers. But the context was that the um, tobacco companies were winning constantly the suits that were brought as class actions or by private individuals because they had solid legal defenses. And what ultimately ended ended up happening in a creative legal strategy that was actually brought by state attorneys general and also in um, some territories is that they brought suit under, similarly, um, a lot of uh, state laws that were based in unfair and deceptive practices and marketing. So similar area of law where there is a carve out and there is a way to get to these otherwise well-insulated industries. And then what was sort of interesting as a, a second piece of this was there was an attempt to actually reach a settlement that would be approved by Congress in legislation And Congress refused to pass that. So what ultimately ended up happening is there was a a settlement between, I think it was 46 of the states plus territories and several tobacco companies, um, some additional tobacco companies ended up joining the settlement after it was finalized. 
and it was a huge amount of money and it fundamentally changed the tobacco industry. So this is very small compared to that, but it is a start. And I think the possibility of finding a way to fit within the exception to the legislative block on these types of civil suits that's gotten in the way in the gun manufacturers, ammunition manufacturers um, context is called PLACA, the um, Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act. And I think, you know, this is an interesting way of doing it. It it sounds from um, some of what I've seen that this will not work in all states because the Connecticut state law was worded in such a way that it could contemplate. And in fact, I think uh, the court looked at some of the legislative history to suggest that this was not outside the bounds of what the legislature had in mind when it passed this law looking at, um, you know, prohibiting deceptive advertising practices and the like. Um, But there are other state laws that do not follow that, that would not, um, and I think have been found by other courts um, that do not encompass this sort of claim. So it will not work nationwide if you're relying on state law, which means if you want this to work universally, there would need to be a legislative change at the federal level, or there would need to be legislative changes in the states to be able to have similar lawsuits go forward. But um, I suspect there will be efforts to do this in those states where it seems plausible that state law would meet the exception in PLACA. The other uh, suit, just uh, Scott, since you mentioned the pending legislation in California, there was actually another suit um, that I learned about that has not gotten very much attention. But in Texas, there was a suit brought by the victims of a 2018 mass shooting at a high school in Santa Fe against a, um, an ammunition company. And on Friday, the Texas Supreme Court denied a writ of mandamus and allowed this suit to go forward. And this suit was um, on the basis of a different exception within PLACA, which is um, selling to the ammunition company sold without the proper due diligence to a minor, someone under 18, which is another exception to the liability shields within PLACA. And that suit will go forward. And it's, it goes to show that, you know, there we should not think of PLACA as an absolute shield, that there is no plausible way to get to gun manufacturers or ammunition manufacturers, because there are exceptions that are built into the legislation. And where there is negligence, gross negligence, recklessness by companies, um, manufacturers, it's harder to prove, but it has been proven in the, in the case of um, individual dealers where it's easier to establish the facts um, that would prove negligence um, and willful blindness because you need to get to an, a knowing standard to meet the uh, PLACA exception. But there, there are routes. They're complicated. PLACA should not be underestimated, um, clearly can't be underestimated because of the impact it's had on prohibiting or getting these these cases thrown out for many, many years now. But I think it goes to show that it's not totally hopeless. And um, we should think continue to think about innovative legal strategies for trying to use civil litigation. I, I certainly hope that the, the strategies that Natalie just described work. Um, but I, I will admit to being a little more skeptical than I think maybe Natalie is, or at least looking at this current settlement as 
uh, much of an indication of what's going forward for, for a couple of reasons. First, I, I think it can't be overstated just how, well, they're not unique, tragically, these facts, given the number of mass shootings. But, you know, Sandy Hook is, I, I do nevertheless think a, 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 even among mass shootings that America suffered in the last several years, you know, particularly grim. And so, you know, the fact that the Supreme Court denied cert in this case, I think may be, may, may say, frankly, more about the court's not wanting to issue a controversial pro-gun ruling in the context of this kind of horrible tragedy than it does signaling what the court's actual view on you know placa and and its scope should should be the, the other thing that that makes me wonder if the tobacco analogy works here is that there is no constitutional right to smoke cigarettes and the supreme court has held that there is a constitutional and personal right to firearms, the Second Amendment, obviously. And again, whether or not you agree with that interpretation of the Second Amendment, that is settled law. And there's no reason to think that on this 6-3 court, uh, that's going to change anytime soon, right? Earlier in the podcast, we were talking about the Brandenburg case, right? Which is an example of where the Supreme Court limits tort law because there is an underlying constitutional interest at stake, in that case, the First Amendment. And it wants to limit tort law so as not to potentially chill that expression. I would not be surprised if this, this Supreme Court uh, does something similar um, for the Second Amendment. Now, it may um, still allow the occasional mass shooting lawsuit uh, like we're talking about here. But despite the fact that the, you know, Sandy Hook is, I mean, it's a truly horrific event, um, it is not representative of the nature of gun violence in this country, right? Which is overwhelmingly due to you know, handguns in cases where one or two individuals die. That is by far the bigger actual gun violence problem in this country. And there, um, the sort of really aggressive litigation that I think it would take to meaningfully impact the bottom lines of gun manufacturers and to get them to stop flooding the market with these types of weapons, I'd be very skeptical that the Supreme Court would, would allow that under its current jurisprudence. So that doesn't mean that we shouldn't continue to try to hold gun companies accountable where we can, but I, I, I would not want to read too much into this particular success, because I think this is, um, you know, sort of the exception that proves the rule that under the current both statutory and constitutional regime, as it's understood by um, the federal judiciary, it is a, a very inhospitable atmosphere for gun safety advocates to use the law to advance their policy objective, unfortunately. Alan, I don't disagree with what you're saying, but I also think we actually need to not overlook some of the potential around civil litigation and not overstate some of the constitutional actual like contours of, of what exists around this area. You know, there's a constitutional right to bear arms that has been interpreted to mean individual ownership of arms. That's not the same thing as an open-ended right, frankly, to manufacture or sell arms in the first place, although there is probably some relationship there. But my understanding, my recollection is that lower appellate courts have actually been pretty split on that question, even after Heller, that how robust or whether there is any meaningful kind of constitutional valence there. And it is also not the same as owning a firearm doesn't mean you have a right to do whatever you want with that firearm. Um, you know, one issue that I think would be interesting is is looking at liability for handling firearms, possessing firearms when people don't report the resale or the theft of firearms. There's lots of restrictions you could see over the possession of firearms that you that wouldn't 
in any sort of vision inflict limit the ability to actually possess firearms or use them in a lawful intended way um, but instead we'll be regulating or potentially potentially attaching civil liability to the mishandling of firearms or the mishandling of the process of manufacturing marketing and selling firearms so i don't i don't think it's worth i don't think we should be assume that like the second amendment actually prevents all sorts of action this area. I think the barrier is much more political and cultural than it is actually legal when you move beyond that, the kind of like core legal restrictions on the actual possession of firearms, which was the focus of a lot of gun control laws for a long time, right? That is a very, very big problem post-Heller. Doesn't mean there's stuff that can't be done there. There actually still is, um, but there's much more constitutional valences in that space. Further out from that, looking at broader gun industry, I, I, I'm not sure that's actually true, but we haven't really gotten to test it that much because there haven't been that much political will to do it. What I think is interesting about PLACA and this Connecticut case is that like, it suggests that there may be an, at least there's one avenue by which some state action could have a bearing here, right? It would have to be a fact pattern where you've got a compelling case to be able to establish some sort of like negligence claim, at least for against manufacturers or sellers, right? But it's a lot more likely you're going to get a state legislature on board to try and build out some sort of legal structure for holding people accountable for the stuff than you are probably the US Congress anytime in the foreseeable future. And I think that maybe that's an avenue by which we can see some states begin to explore some of these issues. Now, maybe Congress will come back and say, okay, we're going to cut this exception. We're going to limit states' ability to do this. Um, I think that'd be within their legal authority to do that. But you, they've got to overcome potentially Democratic objections in the House, the Senate, or the presidency. If one of those is controlled by Democrats, that may be hard for them to do, or enough Democrats, I should say, because some Democrats obviously are, are, are very strong Second Amendment supporters. The, the long and short of it, I think, is that like I... I think we, as the success of these things, I don't think we should be quote, too easy to rule out as actually being notable about illustrating potential tools. And the SB8 example uh, that or model that we see in California is particularly kind of interesting in that regard. Like, I think it's probably going to fall on some of those same issues as SB8 will eventually once it actually gets the full judicial vetting that the law is kind of designed to avoid as long as it can. But ultimately, I'm very dubious that it can inevitably avoid that sort of judicial review. I think that'd be the same case with the California law and depending on how it's applied and what exactly it's, it's restricting, that may be issues there. But that's precisely because it's actually targeting what is otherwise constitutionally protected conduct, both in the abortion context and the guns context. I think these other measures targeting adjacent conduct that nonetheless, if you are able to install, install liability for, could have a real impact on the spread of guns and the fueling of the fire of gun violence, I, you know, I think there's still potential there. And this suggests that at least gun companies are worried about and don't feel so solid in their defense, or at least this one gun company. Uh, and you combine this with the amount of pressure being put on the NRA um, by New York state government because of its legitimately problematic and likely illegal business practices in various regards. You know, I think there's avenues for this stuff happening on the states, and that's why we're seeing action taking place at this level. And this points to one area where state action isn't prohibited by federal law. Uh, we may see other actions along these lines if you get a state law, if you find the right case combined with the right state law or state legislature willing to do something about it. I think that I side with Scott and, and Natalie here. And again, I want to step back and make a, a kind of a higher level point about the the particular role that the Sandy Hook shooting plays um, in this discourse. I think that for me, certainly, and for a lot of people, the shooting was both uh, representative of just how far the U.S. had gone in the direction of allowing guns um, in many places and in the hands of people who perhaps shouldn't be having them. Um, and also how far the U.S. had gone in in terms of how 
the murder of all of these children did not spur any action. Um, I mean, I, I was in college in Connecticut at that time, going to school about 30 minutes from Sandy Hook. And I remember the buses with little kids going by my dorm early that afternoon because the school was closed um, and the kids were going home to their families. And I think about that every time, you know, that, that we talk about Sandy Hook and how little has been done since then to curb gun violence. And so I do wonder, keeping in mind, you know, all of the potential problems that these lawsuits could run into, maybe maybe I'm being too hopeful here, which is unusual for me, but a victory in a, in a Sandy Hook case, precisely because of the case's outside importance in the kind of the discourse and the, you know, metaphorical idea of what gun violence means and how we respond to it might be able to galvanize further movement to hold these manufacturers responsible using the loopholes that we've described. I don't know, but it seems crazy not to try, frankly, especially because so many other avenues have been closed down. Just to be clear, this is not to go that I, I think these lawsuits should proceed. I'm just I'm just being a I'm just being a downer. I'm not saying that like we shouldn't. You're try. being a curmudgeon. I'm just being a curmudgeon, but I, I our know. resident curmudgeon. Yeah. All right. Well, unfortunately, that is just about all the time we have for this discussion today. But this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to carry with you for the rest of your week and ponder on. Alan, let me hand it over to you first. What is your object lesson for this week? So I'm I'm keeping it basic. My object lesson is excellent television, uh, and actually, uh, courtesy of uh, Lawfare editor in chief and uh, once upon a time rational security regular host co-host Benjamin Wittes. Uh, so thank you, Ben, for this suggestion. My object lesson is the Netflix limited uh, edition series "Inventing Anna," a kind of lightly fictionalized account of the uh, Russian-born fake German heiress society figure Anna Sorokin, also known as Anna Delvey, who several years ago managed to worm her way into New York high society and then was uh, ultimately uncovered and convicted of a bunch of fraud offenses. Um, the show is amazing. It's a Shonda Rhyme show, which means that it's kind of beautiful and snappy and it's just incredibly entertaining. Um, the performances are fantastic. The actress who plays the title character is just amazing. She kind of combines this like innocence with deep sociopathy with a side of narcissism it's really it's an amazing performance to watch it's super entertaining highly recommended inventing anna alan i'm i'm going to have to for the sake of diversity respectfully dissent from your assessment of inventing anna as i spent a couple hours last not just last night watching a few episodes of this on a friend's recommendation and i absolutely hated it <laughs> what it's so good it's got really clear, bad your- reviews how it is spectacularly good really yes i think you are just a just a regular passport holder for shondaland because i but i am not i i have i have burned my visa not and not planning on returning uh because i have I, I watched like two episodes of scandal and it was the single dumbest thing i've ever put in front of my eyes and i this show is much better than that i will give it that and like i found aspects of it kind of interesting but it's kind of just like rich people's being a spectator, like weird rich behavior. And I'm like, I just, I can't, I, I find rich people so boring. And after I took that away, I was like, I don't know if there's anything there. I do think the, the both the lead actors are excellent. I like the reporter and uh, the main character, I think are great. I love the reporter, Anna Shlomsky, who was from Veep and, and my girl way back in the day. I think she's great. It's awesome to see her in something. But 
I, I can't say I can't say I was on board with you, but I think people should check it out and uh, let us know what you think or in, in this investing and uh, uh, debate that we will no longer have, no doubt, have ongoing for a while yet. I don't understand how can everyone be so into succession, which is just a bunch of nasty rich people being nasty to each other, and not then like inventing Anna, which is just so much more entertaining and actually has like a decent person at the heart of it, not Anna, but the reporter. I am flabbergasted. Alan, we're gonna have to fight this out another time. Okay. Yeah. We'll take it to Twitter. <laughs> Shonda, weigh in. <laughs> Let us know what you think. Um, we'll have you on the podcast. Hash this one out. Uh, Quinto, why don't you share your object lesson with us next? My object lesson is possibly my, bo- my most on-brand ever object lesson. It is an essay in Slate by Adam Kotko, who is a scholar and translator of the Italian philosopher Giorgio Agamben. Now, for everyone who hasn't already fallen asleep, bear with me. Agamben is a very famous philosopher. He sort of hit it big, especially in in, uh, English language media, uh, post 9-11 for his writings about the state of exception. Uh, And then it turned out when COVID happened that he was completely insane and started writing all of these things about how COVID was a fake emergency and it was just an example of governments using a pretext to, you know, make their citizens submit and to, you know, Foucauldian structures of biopower and everything you heard about in college. It was absolutely bananas. And this is a really interesting essay by um, this person who has, you know, spent his life studying Gombin's work and translating his writings from Italian, trying to figure out what the hell happened and what to make of the fact that, you know, his sort of intellectual lodestar turns out to have completely lost his marbles around COVID. Uh, so as someone who has been following the Giorgio Gombin marble losing process from the beginning, I found this totally fascinating. But it's also just a really interesting reflection on what it means when your, you know, idol loses their their intellectual way. Uh, definitely recommend reading it. I promise you that it is more interesting than I have made it sound. That's how I feel about Iron Rogers. Same principle. <laughs> it's a bummer. Well, for my object lesson this week, I thought I would pass along a pair of recommendations for what I often assume is like a heavily DC leaning or audience for rational security. I actually don't know if that's technically true because uh, I have done one or two DC related suggestions before, but I'm going to do another one um, just because I had two wonderful experiences this weekend at two different restaurants that I got to go to for the first time in several, several months that I've been into a restaurant and I went to two. Um, but one uh, I will recommend is my neighborhood joint that I absolutely love called Etabli in Bloomingdale. It's a phenomenal wine bar that has an amazing wine collection, an amazing wine club, uh, really phenomenal food, Italian-ish food in a wood-fired oven. It's like right around the corner for me. I want to keep it there as long as I can. So everyone, please come check it out and give them their business. They're absolutely fantastic. Great staff, great food, uh, phenomenal group. Uh, and join the wine club, which I do once a month and is a lot of fun. Um, and they have a large patio if you're not comfortable eating inside, you can eat outside at. And the second is Daru, which is a phenomenal new Indian place with some fancy cocktails mixed in. That is right off of H Street at the, on the far end of H Street, away from downtown. I think it's close to 14th. It is like phenomenal. Some of the best Indian food I've had in a really long time. Super interesting stuff, like mixing and kind of like fusion elements brought in uh, to a lot of like really traditional dishes. Really, really good cocktails. Add chat with the 
bartender Matthew, where my wife and I uh, were hanging out and just chilling at the bar for a couple hours on Saturday on our on our very rare date night. Um, it was a phenomenal experience. So both places highly, highly recommend. If you are in D.C., live in D.C., or passing through, please check them out uh, and keep them around uh, getting through this still difficult pandemic period, even though we're hopefully coming out of it soon. Natalie? So... I was debating for my object lesson whether I should continue my criticism of children's literature because it recently came to my attention that the beloved Make Way for Ducklings um, story is incredibly sexist and antiquated um, because the ducklings all get hatched and then it talks all about how hard it is for Mr. and Mrs. Mallard to take care of all these ducklings. And then on the next page, it says, one day, Mr. Mallard decided he wanted to see what else was down the river. So he said to Mrs. Mallard, I'll see you in a week. And like, come on, that's just, that's, that's a bad message to send to our children. But I think my more interesting um, object lesson is I got for my birthday an ember mug, which I will admit is absurdly expensive, but it was an excellent birthday present. It is life altering. So it's this mug, if you're not aware of it, that um, keeps your coffee warm. You can actually, using the internet of things, set what your preferred temperature is that you would like said mug to um, keep your beverage at. But it keeps your drink warm, I think, when it's not on its little charger for like two hours, or you can just keep it resting on its charger and it'll stay warm indefinitely and it doesn't have that like burned taste that if you keep coffee on for too long or you keep warming it up in the microwave which is what I've been doing for years it just is delightful and I just finished um, a cup of coffee that I started at approximately 8 15 this morning um, because I enjoy apparently taking very small sips at least for my like second or third cup of coffee which I'm definitely on but I really I I normally am not this attached to objects, but I really, guys, I mean, it's just so great. I I want all of you to experience this joy. Besides, I mean, I know Quinta has already experienced this joy. I am an ember aficionado. Oh my gosh, it's so great. I I really hope that those of you who are interested in this, I, I really hope that you get the sheer joy out of this that I do. The only problem is that I need multiple coasters because I keep carrying the mug around my apartment and then I sit down and I don't move and it runs out of charge. So I'm, I'm trying to convince myself to shell out for an additional coaster, but it's like $50. So that's, that's a hard uh, thing to convince myself to do. Also, you mentioned that it is Internet of Things enabled. So how does it feel that your mug that you're drinking out of right now is almost certainly being used as part of a large Russian botnet at this very moment? You can turn off the Internet of Things connection, which I have. Yeah, no, I'm pretty sure that that's why we were having technical issues earlier. Um, no, I, I have turned off the Internet of Things um, aspect of things. It's still but works. Vladimir Putin is just going to like swipe in, turn all these up to 180 <laughs> degrees and just take out like a quarter of DC's intelligentsia, maybe for the better. <laughs> but, but who knows? We'll see, we'll see how this plays out. Um, and while that brings us to the end of this week's episode, remember that Rational Security 2.0 is like its forebear, production of Lawfare. You can still find our show page at lawfareblog.com, where you will find liner notes for this episode, including links to the articles and object lessons we discussed. 
Uh, you can also purchase Rational Security swag at thelawfarestore.com or go to patreon.com slash lawfare to become a material supporter of Lawfare for ad-free podcast feeds and other special benefits, including a committed ad-free feed for this very podcast. And also bear in mind, this is not our only podcast. We also have a daily podcast called The Lawfare Podcast, seven days a week, 365 days a year, except for every four years, we squeeze one more in. Uh, we also have a regular series chatter, a long-form interview podcast about national security in and national security adjacent industries in the entertainment industry and the science industry. That's a phenomenal listen, uh, as well as a number of series of special podcasts, most recently The Aftermath, which looks into the response to January 6th. Be sure to check those out at lawfareblog.com or in your podcatcher. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Hamza Shatu of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. Oh, I almost forgot. Please, please follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. And wherever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review or hit that share button and pass along to your loved ones. Once again, we are edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. And on behalf of my co-hosts, Alan Quinton, our special guest, Natalie, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we'll talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.